Hey, I want to pray uh, this morning. Uh, before I pray, I want to say that um, as you have decisions to make for Christ, um, even though we're not in maybe what we would normally do, that I'm at the front after the service. Uh, if you're watching by the live stream, you can reach out to a staff member and we can get with you to talk with you about whatever your need is and the decision, the step that you need to take. Uh, there's several things I want to pray for today. I'm going to ask you to stand with me as I pray this morning. Um, you'll know what's on my heart as I pray this morning, okay? Um, but if you would pray with me. Father, today we thank you for our time of worship and we thank you uh, for the freedom that we have in Christ. Father, um, I pray for those burdens on my heart today and Father, I think of uh, the country of Guinea today that uh, is in the midst of a national election and Father, we know that it's a volatile time and um, Father, my, my prayer would be that you would keep peace in that country, uh, that the gospel would be able to uh, go back into that place. And so, Father, I pray just for calm as the elections occur today and in the days that follow. Uh, Father, I pray uh, for us in America today. Father, it's also a volatile time. It looks a little bit different uh, but it's volatile all the same. And Father, I pray uh, first for us as Christians and for the church. And I pray that you would do a work of revival in our midst. And Father, this week as we have prayed for our Unity Baptist Association churches, the Southern Baptist churches in Polk and Angelina County, Father, I pray that you would do a new work in our hearts in our church's lives that we would be the gospel people that you need us to be that we would stand for truth and for the love that we find in Jesus Christ uh, Father I pray for us as a nation and I pray just as I prayed for Guinea that there would be calm in our nation and that your hand would remain upon uh, our national life and I pray that somehow, Father, that you could do a work in these days of returning our nation back to you. And so we pray that uh, you would be at work. And, Father, when our hearts are anxious, when there are so many things uncertain, that, Father, we would find our peace and our joy and our security in the everlasting God. And so, Father, today we pray as we turn to your scripture that you would speak to us particularly as the church today. And we trust this to you, and we pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. 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 Thank you. You may be seated. Uh, there is a saying that goes like this. Boats do not sink because they are in the water. Boats sink because the water is in them. Boats do not sink because they are in the water. Boats sink because the water is in them. Um, I'm not here to teach you about boats today or the water. I'm here to talk to you about the church 
and the world. If you use that adage, what I would say today is that churches don't sink because they are in the world. That's where God's placed us. Churches sink because the world is in them. That was the message that Paul was impressing upon Timothy. And this fall we've been working our way through 2 Timothy, and this morning we come to 2 Timothy, the third chapter, starting in the first verse. Um, and we've talked about essentials. 2 Timothy is a letter that Paul writes uh, as his final words to his understudy, Timothy, whom he's about to pass his ministry off to. So I've contended that whatever Paul is telling Timothy is an essential, or what we have tagged as life truths that matter. And I want to talk today about living in discernment. Living in discernment. Uh, we as a church, we as Christians... In the circumstances that we find ourselves need to live in discernment. We need to know the days that we pass through and see them in light of God's truth. Living in discernment. So Paul writes to Timothy... If you've been here for the previous, I don't know, six or seven sermons, you know we're halfway through 2 Timothy. I'm, I'm optimistic by Christmas we're going to be through 2 Timothy. Amen. Uh, we come to chapter 3 this morning. And this is what Paul says to Timothy. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, Brutal, despisers of good, traitors, oh, he goes on, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly 
will be manifest to all as theirs also was. And I'm going to skip to verse 13. I know that doesn't follow our little pattern. But I believe Paul completes this thought in verse 13. In fact, I think he somewhat summarizes it. Verse 13. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Um, Living in discernment. Paul told Timothy that I want you to see the world in which you live in. That's why he starts in verse 1 and he says, but know this. This is kind of a reality check. You need need to understand what's going on and actually where we're going to end up. He says, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Now, when he uses that phrase, last days, it is a phrase that... (laughs) can refer to the time from Jesus leaving this earth until he returns again. So we are in the last days. They were in the last days. But I believe in this sense, uh, he is using it to refer to the last of the last days, if that makes any sense, at the end. And so get this. What Paul is saying is, Timothy, I need you to understand where this thing's going to end up. I need you to know what it's going to be like in the last days. Uh, Now, he's going to teach that we're moving there, we're not there, but this is where we're going. But know this, that in the last days, he says, perilous times will come. And so what I'm saying is that he said, this is what will come. Timothy, it's not where we are, but it's where we will end up. And you will know that you are in the last of the last days because of the things that you will see. And the state of the world in which you will find yourself, this is what will come. It's interesting that he uses the word, he says, uh, he says, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. That's the word he chooses, perilous. A word that can mean trouble um, is a word that can mean dangerous. I think we get that sense with perilous. I, w- I was intrigued when I, there's only one other time that this particular adjective is used in the New Testament and it's uh, in Matthew 8 28 and it's the story of the gathering demoniac the man who had the legion of demons and it says that this man uh, was really terrorizing uh, that region and it uses it says that he was being exceedingly fierce. Now, this is the guy that was, oh, he was hitting himself. Brother Samuel, we've, David, you know, we've told these stories. Cricket, we've told the stories of the, the, the man with the legion of demons. That was our first story in Africa. And he's, he's screaming. He's up day and night. He's living in the, where they bury the dead, the cemetery. And he's hitting himself with rocks. And he's screaming out. And he's just a wild man. Well, it's interesting that when Paul says to Timothy, it's going to be a perilous time, it's, they flash back to, this guy was intensely wild, dangerous. Uh, that's what Paul says the last days are going to be like. Perilous, intensely wild. Uh, this is where we're going to end up. This is not where we presently are. I want you to get that sense in verse 13. 
I want to skip down to that because I believe it gives us uh, the rest of Paul's thought on this and the reason I included verse 13. And then after we go to 13, we'll go back to verse 2. He says, But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. I want you to focus on verse 13 and understand that he not only says evil men, but he says imposters. People who pretend to be something that they are not. And the word I'm going to use today is the word counterfeits. People that appear to be something, but they are not. They are imposters. I want you to also get the sense from verse 13 that what Paul is teaching is it will grow worse and worse. This is actually a principle when you study end time scriptures is that there are signs but at the end there will be an intensification of those signs and that's what Paul is teaching here. He, He would say, Timothy would probably say, you know, things aren't real good right now in Ephesus. Paul says it's going to grow worse and worse. It's going, the wickedness in the world is going to intensify in evil. You've got to get this. I, that's a very, I know that's a very pessimistic word. I'm sorry. I don't make up my own material. Okay? If I did, I would have a happy, clappy ending. And there is a happy, clappy ending. But as far as the world, do not think that the world is going to get better and better. No, actually what the scripture teaches is the world is going to get worse and worse. And I would say to you, church, today, it's not a question of the world, it's a question of us. It's going to grow worse and worse. But it's this phrase at the end of verse 13. The imposters will be deceiving. But I'm struck by that second phrase that says, and being deceived they will be deceived themselves and they will be deceiving they are imposters they uh, will be deceived and they will be deceiving and I believe all of that is in the mind of Paul when he has that in verse 1 when he says but know this that in the last days perilous times will come Oh, y'all, verses 2, 3, and 4, there's a list of 18 adjectives about what it will look like at the end, how bad it will get. And you think, why does Paul use so many descriptive words there? He wanted Timothy to know how bad it was going to get. I wish there's a word study on each one of those words. Hmm. Don't have time for it this morning. There's 18 words that he uses to describe uh, the condition of the world. Uh, one of the things actually that strikes me is in verse 2 he says, For men will be lovers of themselves and, and so forth. And I want you just to understand that he says, For men. And we'll just leave that in suspense of who he's talking about there. The thing that I want to just bring out from those 18, there's just one little thought, and it relates to the counterfeits that are coming. 
is that, and you see this more so in the original language, but in that first phrase he says, they will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. And then when he gets down to the end, he says they will be lovers of pleasure and then rather than lovers of God. And the thing that I, I sat there and I thought about that in all these terms of what it's going to be like at the end and the intensification of evil as we approach the last of the last days, it's not that he says that people will be haters of God. Um, but they will love other things. And I thought, you know what? That's just like Satan. Satan doesn't trick us and say, I want you to hate God. He just, because God is love, and ultimately we are to be, and that's what Paul is saying, that all of these things they do, rather than be lovers of God, that is ultimately what God wants us to do. He wants to love us to love him. Satan just twisted, deceives us a little bit. And it's, it's not that we're haters, we're still lovers, but we love things other than God. Starting with, in verse 2, that we are lovers, I should say these men are, lovers of themselves. And then later, well, and he says lovers of money, themselves, money, and then finally, verse 4, pleasure rather than lovers of God. Um, the statement I wanted to make this morning is really about counterfeits, imposters. And the truth that I want you just to if you had to take one little phrase to fixate on it is this that counterfeits corrupt the church through compromise counterfeits corrupt the church through compromise and I believe that's what Paul was teaching Timothy as a leader you need to watch for the counterfeits because the counterfeits will corrupt not the world, but the church. How? Through compromise. He, they will deceive. They will turn it just a little bit. We're still lovers. We just love the wrong things. Um, as I meditated on this scripture, I came to verse 5 this week. And I thought, wait a second. This begins to tell us who the men are in verse 2 because he says in verse 5, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And I just set my mind on that. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. And the conclusion I came to is the men that are described by the 18 adjectives in 2, 3, and 4 get this, are within the circles of the church. Uh, next Sunday, Paul will speak to Timothy about how the world treats the church. He's not talking about that. He's talking with, I don't know however you want to see this, within the circles of Christianity of the church. 
the men that are described are not outside the church. They're somehow, at least marginally, within the circles of the church because they have a form of godliness. They have an out, they have an external practice of religion. They don't say, no, we are godless people. We don't want to have anything to do with God. No, you get it? They're counterfeits. They're imposters. They're ones that just twisted a little bit. And no, we have godliness. But Paul says to Timothy, no, they, they have a form, an outward form of godliness, but they are denying the power. The power of God that says God sits on a throne. God is in control. God's word is truth. God is the only one who saves. God is the only one through Jesus Christ uh, that changes our lives. Power resides in God, not me, a lover of myself and of money and pleasure, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Uh, he describes people in verse 6 who manipulate the vulnerable for personal gratification. These people, for of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts. Your preacher doesn't even have time to go there this morning. I got to move on to verse 7. And it strikes me again when I... It was verse 5 and verse 7 that really struck me as I meditated on the Scripture this week. Verse 7, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Man. The people that talk and think and theorize and debate and talk and talk talk, always learning, but never coming to the place of conviction. It occurs in the head, but never gets to the conviction of the heart that says, no, this is truth. It's not debatable. It's not something really up for discussion because I've settled in my heart. These are Core heart convictions, this is truth, which ought to be the reason we pursue knowledge, right? Amen. To come to the place where we know convictionally what is truth. But if you're always learning and not coming to the knowledge of truth, then you don't really want to know the truth. Maybe you want to make truth what you want to make truth. As an example of the counterfeits, he talks about Janus and Jambres, who are not mentioned in the Bible, but according to Jewish tradition, these are the two magicians in Pharaoh's courts that did the same signs that Moses and Aaron did. You can go back and read it in Exodus 7, 8, 9. I'm not saying he uses these words, but according to some extra-biblical Jewish writings. These are the names that were given to those magicians. You, you know, God said, go into Pharaoh and throw down your staff and it's going to become a snake. And uh, these guys went, hey, give us a few moments, and they did some hocus-pocus. I don't know what they did. 
but boom, they made snakes appear. And it kind of goes on from there. What were they doing? They were counterfeiting the works of God. They were doing something to, to make it appear that they could access the same power that Moses had, but they didn't. They couldn't. They were, they were counterfeits. And so it says they resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. This is verse 8. Men of corrupt minds disapprove concerning the faith. I, I love it. I think if you read on, maybe it's Exodus 9. It's like finally Moses does something and they go, mm, Pharaoh, this dude's the real deal. We can't do that. You know, I don't know. It's kind of funny to me. That's, that's my loose translation of the Hebrew text there. Very loose translation. But it's like they kept like doing these things, like making frogs appear and that kind of stuff. And then finally it's like, no, we can't do that one. No, I think this guy really has something. Yeah, you might want to listen up to him. Uh, what they were eventually exposed as counterfeits. And that's really what he says. He ends in verse 9, but they will progress no further. Their progress in the faith, these men who are counterfeits within the circles of the church, they will not progress in the faith for their folly, their foolishness, their sin will be manifested, made evident to all as theirs, referring back to the two magicians in Egypt, also was. When I read this scripture, I realize that we sit almost 2,000 years after Paul wrote these words. And he said, I want, I want you to know what's coming. That the world's going to get worse and worse. And there are going to be people within the circles of Christianity that are counterfeits. And the reason that Paul teaches this to Timothy is so that Timothy as a leader can call out the counterfeits. What's the danger? The danger is not that the boat is in the water. Boats sink because the water gets in them. Churches don't sink because they are in the world because that's where God has placed us for gospel purposes. The churches sink because the world gets in them. I'm struck by verses 2, 3, and 4 of when you look at those 18 descriptive words of what it's going to be like at the end of the end. How much it sounds like today. Paul said to Timothy, it's not really like that, but I want you to know that's where we're going to end up. And uh, your, your pastor's not here to predict the end of the world this week. But when you read those descriptive words of what the world is going to be like, It was given to us for instruction so that we would know that the end is close. 
The danger is that the world will get worse and worse and the church will not realize that the water is sinking into the boat until it's too late. And that's the reason I believe that the essential that is taught in these verses for us today is that we are to live in discernment. We are to see the world in light of God's truth. Hmm. I have about a minute left. Um. Some of us have lived enough life that when we look at the world around us, we see how bad it's gotten. Maybe if you haven't lived that long, you don't have the perspective of time, but some of us have lived long enough that you go, I would have never believed we would come to this day. Um, we have to see the world in light of God's truth. And it's, it's bad in America. Immorality is bad. We are at a place that is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. In light of God's truth, The world in which we live in, in Christian, quote-unquote, Christian America, blatantly violates God's established order of gender, marriage, and sexuality. I'm sorry, there, there's, there's no question about this. There's no explaining it. It is blatant violation of everything that God established in those areas. We live in a world in Christian, quote-unquote, Christian America that legalizes and defends the killing of un the unborn. I'll tell you as a pastor, God has no reason just for that one area for his hand of blessing ever to be on our nation ever again. It is an abomination before God. If there was only one thing, our culture has come to the place where we are offended by basic biblical Christianity that many of us in this room were raised in. And it may have been a cultural faith, I understand that. But there were norms of morality that were understood. And we have come so far as a nation that those very basic tenets 
of morality our world is offended by. We must see the days in which we live in light of God's truth. And we must do everything we can to give our world the only hope that they have, which is Jesus Christ. And in order to do that, we must make sure that the world does not sink the church so that we still are afloat to be the only hope in Jesus Christ that our nation has. One of the essentials is to live in discernment. Amen. Um, I'm going to ask you to stand this morning. I'm going to close in prayer. I know it's a few minutes after 12. We'll be gone shortly. Um, I think after my prayer, the live stream will cut away. I have, if you, will, if you are in the house, if you will stay for just a moment so I could say a few things in closing. Father, today... I pray that you would give us spiritual insight first to see the spiritual condition of our nation first. And Father, I pray that you would, broke, you would break our heart over our own sin and our callousness to the world that has no hope apart from you. And we pray that we would be the ones that diligently, faithfully, passionately preach the gospel to those that you bring into our circles of influence. And Father, we um, would pray in a time of a national election That, Father, that your hand would stay on our nation. Uh, Father, we know that you were sovereign. We know after November 3rd, you will still be sitting on the throne. And, Father, we pray that our, our ultimate allegiance would first and foremost be to you and to the kingdom that will know no end. And so, Father, we pray that you would use us, you would prick our hearts in these days. And, Father, we trust all of these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.